and welcome to episode 49 of the Figure podcast, a monthly conversation between Georgia Parkin and Charlotte Lorimer. Each episode, we look at three figures, a person, a number, and an image. And this week, Charlotte is in France. Yes, I'm in France seeing my dad, who I hadn't seen since January, which was a very, very, very long time ago. And um, I thought that I might as well go while I was still allowed and then quarantine when I get back to Scotland, which is not very far away from the current restrictions anyway. Uh, what have you been filling your time with locked in where you can't do anything, etc.? Good question. I'd say the highlight for me of, was, uh, is a new podcast called The Fault Line, um, which is hosted by Jonathan Dimbleby. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, it is about Bush, Blair and the Iraq war and really re-examining everything in terms of the relationship between the US and the UK, which is really, really fascinating. I mean, now we forget because of, God, many things, Trump, Brexit, all this stuff. But actually, we went into a very, very big war with them what, 18 years ago. Um, looking for weapons of mass destruction that that weren't there, um, and you know, so many thousands of people were killed. As he looks at sort of undercover FBI's, he looks at all sorts. He interviews all sorts of spies. Um, Bush, the team that worked with Bush, the team that worked with Blair, and then Tony Blair himself is on the podcast. It's really, really, really good. That sounds like a true crime thriller podcast but real life but real life yeah um obviously americast is a great podcast following the election i listen to that all the time um and i also read a book that you read i believe Shar, um ghosts yes by dolly alderton um and i can feel how desperate you are to talk about it so i'm going to let you open <laughs> <laughs> so I knew that this book was going to be one that I could not stop reading because that's mm. how it was with everything I know about love, which was her memoir. And it did not disappoint at all. I I actually pre-ordered it months and months ago because I am very keen when it comes to books by my favourite authors. And uh, then it didn't arrive in time before I went to London so I could get my flight to come out to France via Barcelona. I've done a bit of travelling. I've kind of just gone <laughs> cup and DM on it. And I ended up buying another copy because I was so desperate to read this. I just thought I actually can't wait two and a bit weeks and everybody mm. else will already have their hands on this book. And I absolutely loved it. I, I read it while I was in Barcelona and I found myself getting loads of buses kind of unnecessarily because I wanted to sit and read the book. <laughs> I didn't want to walk because then I wasn't able to read it. And so it's about a food writer called Nina who lives in North London. And she had a long-term relationship in her 20s. And she now finds herself at 32, single and not really knowing how to meet people. And she downloads some dating apps, a fictitious one called Lynx which I think is such a great name for a dating app. Mm. It feels very real. And she, 
yeah, starts dating this guy called Max. And it's kind of not a spoiler because it's in the title, but she gets ghosted by him, which means that he completely drops off the face of the earth and just stops replying to her messages after they've been on a lot of dates, spent a lot of time together, become really close. It's just such a good examination of modern dating and how complicated it can be and the role that technology plays within it. And then there are other sorts of ghosts in it too. So her she examines kind of when friendships diverge um, and people move on to different parts of their life and her father has dementia and that is a fascinating and really heartfelt complex nuanced examination of what it means to have a parent who's not well and who is so has such a brilliant memory he used to be an English teacher but then this is sort of being taken away from him and I think one of my favorite things about the whole book is the the role that food plays so all the way through, there's all these beautiful metaphors and similes of, that are related to food. And, and she has this idea for a book about food and memory. And I love the way that she explores that mm. in the book. I, I would say that I'm not experienced ghosting, like in that sense that you've become really close to someone. Technology or no technology, I feel like this theme happens a lot where the male in this male-female dynamic gets very like hot and heavy, like wants to see the female all the time all the time is super invested is like love you love you it's so into you so and then suddenly just like backs off and it's always this like afraid oh I'm afraid of this or I'm afraid of commitment or and she really like explores that very well and like how complicated that is and how it's so hard to understand and that it's always you know we always take it personally when actually it probably isn't to do with us it really it's kind of to do with their own commitment intimacy issues um yeah completely I actually felt validated by that there was yeah Mm. I've definitely I related to that element of it more than the ghosting side it was more Mm. like the breakup yeah yeah and it was just like suddenly someone backs off and you're not sure why yeah, there's no um, there's no legitimate reason. And then you sort of, and it's so cruel because you start, I think the way that a lot of women have been programmed, and I would include myself in this, is um, that we just question ourselves constantly. And so you're then mm-hmm. going through everything that you said with a fine tooth comb and like going over and over and over and, and thinking, oh, what did I say? Did I say that? Should I have done this? Mm-hmm. Should I not have done this? And it, um, you just go into this spiral of overthinking and analysis that is really, really unfair. <laughs> uh, I also read Philosophy by Elizabeth Day, which is her little handbook to failing and how to, so it's seven principles of failure that she's learned from her podcast, How to Fail, uh, which I read on the way to Rome. Um, I've definitely broken out of Scotland this month and just tried to go to places where I'm allowed to and um, and really had a lot of gelato, which I've loved. <laughs> the first figure for this episode is Dame Daphne du Maurier. And one of the reasons that we chose um, to do this figure was to coincide with the release of a new version of Rebecca, which is one of um, Daphne Tomorrow's most famous novels, um, which was released on Netflix. But other very famous novels include My Cousin Rachel, 
um, Jamaica Inn. The Birds. The Birds is a short story, actually. She wrote eight biographies as well, 17 novels and several collections of short stories. So what were your favourite <laughs> moments of the film without trying to give too much away? Army Hammer is really easy to look at. So... <laughs> But anything with him in it, I will watch, especially when it is literally my favourite novel, Rebecca. I just, but you know what was so interesting? So in the book and in the Laurence Olivier film, which is the most famous film that's been done of Rebecca, zero attraction to Maxim, who's the character that he plays, Maxim de Winter, did not get it. He's a bit distant. He's quite cold. I don't really know what's going on with him. And then towards the end of the novel where things become clearer then I have much more empathy with him and I understand what's going on and more obviously with Army Hammer from day one you're just just really into it but then it doesn't it doesn't show the age like there is supposed to be a really distinctive age difference between the new Mrs. De Winter um and Maxim um and there definitely isn't that in the movie I mean they do look like they're what five six years apart I think as the movie gets as you go further into the movie he definitely looks older um but I did I did think that Lily James captured this kind of really naive underconfident slightly annoyingness um which was perfect for her character in the beginning like you do think like you do think she acts as if she's about 20 well she's supposed to be 20 isn't she yeah early 20s but yeah. yeah I think that you're right. They didn't do the age difference in the same way that they have in other adaptations, but she did come across the right age. She came across mm-hmm. very, very young, very inexperienced. And something that I thought they did brilliantly was the the staff, uh, not staff dynamic. So Monte Carlo section of the film lasts quite a long time, which I think had pros and cons. I think that it meant that some of the other parts of the film were a little bit rushed. Um, but the the section where she drops the money on the floor, it's just so mortifying. People who are staying as guests at the hotel being like, oh, how awful that this, the companion to um, a very rich, wealthy, brilliantly played character. By Anne Dowd, yeah. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Mrs. Vanderhopper. So I thought that was a really good moment. And then when she arrives at Manderley, which is the great stately house in Cornwall, where the rest of the book is set um, and where Maxim de Winter's family have lived for centuries, there's this point where Mrs Danvers, who's the housekeeper, says, oh, I thought you would have been to many homes like this because weren't you a housemaid? They highlighted that really well because I didn't, understand the dynamic of that when I read the book the last time that I read it which was a few years ago and I didn't understand I didn't get that from the Laurence Olivier adaptation either and I think it's a really important point not only is the age difference it's the difference in background that makes this so scandalous in a way that Mrs. De- the new right. Mrs. Winter whose name you never find out and mm. Maxim um, are mm. together and how she'll never live up to um, his wife, Rebecca, because she, how could she possibly? She's not even from the right background. And that's something, again, that you can't change, highlighting this age old issue in Britain. Mrs. Danvers makes her feel very small because of it. So, so I think Kristen Scott Thomas's performance was the 
the standout absolutely phenomenal and there was one but I think that the way that they filmed it was so brilliant you know they got the lovely golden light of Monte Carlo and then it completely contrasts the the sort of grey drizzle of Mandalay which is quite haunting yeah. and alien. oh it's perfect but there's a yeah. moment where Mrs Danvers hand goes on to the character that Lily James plays and it was just held there for a little bit too long and it just made you kind of get goosebumps and go oh this is so thrilling and so I love little little things like that um the dropping of the money the hand the moment where she comes downstairs and she's in the red dress all these moments where it made your whole stomach completely convulse and twist and go oh this is so mortifying because she didn't know that she was doing the wrong thing yeah. and she just keeps on doing the wrong thing and the wrong thing and all the while you just got this ghost of Rebecca in the background sort of like laughing at her almost it's just mm. god I can't I can't stop talking about it it's so good <laughs> very good twist but there's very good twist though so it's it's not what you expect. No, which is what makes it such a good story. And I think that's why I love Daphne du Maurier so much because she was one of the greatest storytellers mm. there has ever been. Mm. And she wrote her first novel actually when she was only 22, which was called The Loving Spirit, which I haven't read. Um, but I was first introduced to her work by my dad. Holds a really special place for me because we... We talk about books a lot. My dad it reads and writes, and um, but he rarely ever looks at fiction. And so, but we read these books together when I was way too old to have a bedtime story. <laughs> so we read Jamaica's Inn and Frenchman's Creek together. And then he uh, said that I should read Rebecca um, on my own. And I just completely devoured it. I loved it. And then I read My Cousin Rachel, which also has a brilliant film with um, Rachel Weiss and Sam Catholic in it. So just a little bit more about her biography. Um, she was born in 1907 and she died in 1989. And she met her husband in a really interesting way. He was called Frederick Browning. He had the same name as his father. And after reading her first novel, The Loving Spirit, he was so intrigued by the author that he got on his yacht to try and find her. And um, I think she was, she had a family house in Foy by this time in Cornwall. And he wrote her a note saying, asking if she would like to come out on the boat with him. And then three months later, he proposed. And he signed the letter, Boy Browning, so that he would distinguish himself from his father. And so he was constantly known as Frederick Boy Browning from that point on. And they had three children together. Did you read about the relationships that she had after her husband? No, I didn't. Yeah, with two women. Yeah, she had her first sexual experience with a woman as well, age 18 in Cornwall, apparently. I don't know how people know that. Seems like quite a personal thing to know, but... I'm sure she would have written um, about it all. One of the many biographies that she wrote was Growing Pains, The Shaping of a Writer... And that mm. takes, her, takes us through the first 24 years of her life um, and her childhood. So I think that will be my next book that I read. Mm. And at the moment, actually, I'm reading a book called Rebecca's Tale by Sally Bowman, who wrote the introduction to the, the reprint of My Cousin Rachel. And she's such a fantastic critic, writer. Everything is so razor sharp and her observations of 
My Cousin Rachel is a very feminist text and that it's a lot of it is about how um, foolish men can be and how twisted they can get around one woman's finger and that the, the character of Rachel can manipulate you to such a huge extent. But then you also, you're left with this massive ambiguity and you don't really know, is she being manipulative and cruel or is she being manipulated? But yeah, she wrote this book called Rebecca's Tale. And so it's sort of a sequel. So it starts 20 years after um, the end of the original book, Rebecca. And I'm reading the chapter at the moment that's written from the perspective of Rebecca, which is really, really beautiful. Oh, I really want to read that now. Yeah, it's great. I think that she's taken on a big um, task there because mm. it's a brave writer who would try and carry on <laughs> the work of Daphne du Maurier. But I wanted to ask you something. So we obviously are huge fans of hers, but I think it's, for me, it's quite unusual that you studied her at school. And I think it's interesting that you did it from a drama perspective and not from an English perspective. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So what do you think it is? Why is she not part of the curriculum? Because for me, she should be alongside Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, all of these extraordinary writers. And yet she isn't. I've never seen a university course that includes her. I've never seen an, an English curriculum that includes her. Why do you think that Interesting. is? I, I guess from the perspective from my drama teacher was she loved how her writing and how it was trans- kind of formed into the play, into a play script, and how the characters, it just worked so well putting it on stage. And there were so many different ways that you could do it. Um, and it was very adaptable. And the scenes between, I still remember, I still remember the lines. I was, I played the role of the new Mrs. De Winter. My friend Georgie played Mrs. Danvers. We loved it. We, we, we had like three scenes from, the beginning, middle and end of the... And do you know what? I would say as well, like with including female authors in the curriculum, I think we still have a really long way to go. There's almost a bit of apathy as well. They don't tend to update and change what is taught. They just keep on teaching the same thing. Well, yeah, and they're like, oh, we have a few women. Fine. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a problem. But my other theory is um, to do with the time that she was writing... So in 1907, so she wrote her first book, 1931, I think it came out. There were a lot of very radical writers around. So if you're going to study that period from a history perspective, and the same applies to painting, you tend to look at the people who are pushing the boundaries, breaking the rules, being incredibly rebellious. People like James Joyce and H.G. Wells and... T.S. Eliot and Virginia Woolf and Daphne du Maurier is not a Virginia Woolf. They are both exquisite writers, but she didn't break out of the traditional way of writing and making a character and making a story. So I think that history remembers the rebels. And, and I think there's also, which I really hate, is in lots of art forms, there's almost like this disdain for people who were commercially successful within their lifetimes. If you look at the way that we completely worship artists like Van Gogh and we think, oh, he didn't sell a painting in his entire lifetime, but look at what a genius he was, which is true. But what about all of the people who were commercially successful and did very well in their lifetimes? That doesn't take away from their art. 
that's my theory anyway, that she was extraordinarily successful. She was a woman and she was a very good storyteller and everyone loved her, but it just didn't work with the narrative of, of the history that was put into the way that we look back on it. Is it as well this age-old thing that we it's like not cool to follow or like something that's like very popular? That's mainstream, exactly. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Which I really think we need to question. Everything needs to be seen in its own form. And and I just, well, I even if people don't like Netflix's adaptation, the critics have really torn it down. And I think they set themselves up for disaster because the Laurence Olivier and... Hitchcock version is always going to be completely hailed and I think it's they're going a bit over hype on it um, but I just hope that more and more people discover her work and read the book also listen to her Desert Island Disc because it's mm, music good. choices are stunning and there are lots of lovely little moments in that where she's talking about parts of her life yeah and Green Sleeves will always be one of my favourite songs I don't care if it's really weird and, you know, Tudor, but Green Sleeves is just wonderful. And it reminded me when I was listening to her, I will have that at my hopefully wedding, hopefully funeral, <laughs> potentially 40th, 50th, 60th and beyond. The second figure that we would like to talk about today is that in New Zealand, 96% of sex workers feel that the law protects their rights. And the reason that this is significant is that New Zealand is one of the few countries that has decriminalised prostitution or sex work. And what that means is that it's it's very different from legalisation, which is what you have in Holland and in parts of South America and parts of Australia, which means that there are regulations around prostitution and that they have to meet those regulations in order to work. In New Zealand, decriminalisation, it means that there are no regulations, which actually makes everything safer. They can work together if they want to, which is illegal in Britain, which has the abolitionism, is the name of the law in Britain, India, Spain, parts of Africa which says that if you work with one other sex worker, that forms a brothel, which then means that it's illegal, but you are allowed to exchange money for sex. But there are sort of do's and don'ts that actually you think that it might be curbing the demand, but it's not. It's making it more dangerous. And and then there are also other models called the neo-abolitionism, which is the Nordic model. They also have it in France and Canada, which is that it's legal for women to sell sex, but it's illegal to buy sex. So you think, okay, well, that's good. You just cut off the demand. You don't. It doesn't make any difference to the demand at all. It just means that somebody who is going to go and buy sex, if they're willing to break the law, what else are they willing to do? And it means that they're less willing to give details like their name and their phone number, which means that the woman is then, again, in a more precarious and dangerous position. And then obviously the last version of it is prohibitionism, which covers most of the US, Russia, China, South Africa, where all of it is illegal. But yeah, I found out all of this, we both did, from a brilliant TED talk by Juno Mapp. 
and she is a sex worker herself and part of the English collective of prostitutes. Mm. Thanks so much for sending that TED talk. It was so interesting. One of the best bits is when she refers to banning stuff like abortion, alcohol, and like compares it, because then that really paints a clear image. You're like, oh yeah, if you're doing that, it doesn't stop any of those people from doing those things just by banning it. With something like sex work, it's very easy to have an opinion of, oh, it's wrong, or oh, it should be banned, or oh, da-da-da. Same with drugs and abortion or whatever it is. And actually, this TED Talk was so great at breaking down, kind of like how you just said, Sharp, like all the different ways those laws aren't protecting her, which is what they kind of say that they're trying to do, is protect them, but they're actually not. I think some of the shocking things as well that she highlights is that in parts of the world where there are laws against prostitution, especially in places like the US, Mm. carrying condoms is used as evidence against you. So obviously that means the incentive is not to carry condoms, which then again is putting you into a more dangerous position. And it just... I also think we really, really need to look at the laws in Britain. These have got to change. We cannot have a law that outlaws two women working together, therefore bringing safety to each other, meaning that that's illegal. And then the men knowing that that's illegal, meaning that then they can threaten them. And again, it becomes even more dangerous. And I think we need to stop thinking of this as something that is sinful and terrible and everybody in it is a victim they're not always victims, and but I would say that they're probably victims of the system that has let them down to the point where sometimes the only way that they can feed their children is by selling sex. It's such a random way of trying to catch sex workers. Well, I think that's the thing, isn't it? They're trying to catch them, and that's not that shouldn't be what we're doing. We should be thinking. Lots of people choose to work that way, and I think that they should be empowered and allowed and free to make that choice especially when the sex industry is one of the few industries in the entire world and in the history of the world where women can actually make more money than men I wish that wasn't the case I don't think that that should be ever taken away from women because in so many ways the system has failed us and and we should be allowed to do that safely and knowing that that is there for people who want to do that does that make sense I don't I don't want to like endorse it or criticize it. I don't know if I'm putting that in the right way, but okay. A lot of work that has been considered for women, lots of it has not been paid, not been valued, not been protected in the same way that other work has been. So that covers everything from like cooking, cleaning, childcare. And I also think it covers things like prostitution. And there's this lack of appreciation that it is work and that they need to be protected in the same way that any other worker was like for a traditionally male activity such as sending men down into mines people don't want to do that obviously but they need to pay the bills but you would always have rights and works and unions around that work why isn't this it the same for sex work 100 percent. zooming out sex is still such a taboo in the way that we don't talk about it enough we don't talk about sexual health enough we don't talk about trafficking and all sorts of issues that can kind of come in the outskirts of sex work we just we just don't have a conversation around it's like people don't like to talk about it or think about it and then therefore these these policies and laws don't change 
Yeah, exactly. I think just finally, very quickly on on prostitution during the pandemic, I was looking at the the impact of that. And it is really, it's a very precarious industry to begin with. When you start having touch and being in close proximity to somebody that is now illegal in lots of places, obviously that has a huge knock-on effect. Mm-hmm. But it has just meant that there's been more online activity which is is fine, but then it makes me think, what if you don't have a laptop? Like, what if this is your only way to make money and then you don't have the technology and the means? And then also there's a lot of manipulation, data collection, potential problems that can happen with that. And obviously there's no protection for, you know, people who are in that industry. They can't go and apply for like a self-employment grant, even though they're doing work. The third figure that we're going to talk about is an image of Britain divided down the middle, sort of diagonally in what is referred to as the north-south divide between England, more than Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales. And this was initially inspired by headlines and coronavirus-related measures and this London-centric approach that we've seen throughout the pandemic but we'd also like to talk about the history of where this comes from. So, G, do you want to kick us off? Where does it come from? And like you said, I think the and then the initial reason I wanted to look at it was so many things the pandemic has highlighted is like inequalities and kind of that have existed, and it just has highlighted it. And when I was watching all the Andy Burnham coverage last week about him pretty much like putting his foot down about all of the you know, people in Greater Manchester who are affected by the pandemic and there's nothing in place to protect them. I thought, gosh, how interesting that this has really shown, like, how the North has been so badly affected by COVID. The South is still pretty much all in tier one. And how the country itself has been very London-centric. Yeah. Um, How it's wealth, you know, the wealth divide is very clear between North and South. And even dating back, I mean, even when the Romans occupied England, but then when it was kind of more established and we ended up having, you know, kings and rulers, the Earl of of Wessex ruled the rest of England. So traditionally, the power had come from the south. And as you got further north, you know, especially the divide with Scotland and um, Nordic invaders, it was always much more blurred and there was like a, a distinct difference there. Whereas the South was, you know, conquered and also then conquered by William of Normandy that became more French. Um, his establishment of power me- meant that, you know, he very brutally took over England and was able to establish power in England, but not, not everyone was happy about that, particularly in the North. The other thing that I was reading about was the role of the Industrial Revolution, that a lot of manufacturing, especially things like cotton, happened in Manchester and in the North, but the economy and the political power remained in the South. And and it ends up being this class divide as well, that you've got working class and then and then the people who are sort of benefiting from the work of the working class. And I think I actually only became aware of how distinct that was when I went to Durham because that my accent makes me sound like I'm from Surrey, <laughs> which is where my mum was brought up. I sound like my mum. But nobody could understand why I was actually fur- from further north 
than they were but I didn't I sounded like I was really really southern there are a lot of assumptions made on people based on their accent constantly it's a real problem I think I think just London is not the United Kingdom and people forget that it's it's actually a place made up of so many different people who live come from all over the world and and London has become you know it's so huge um and when you think of something like um the vote you know Britain leaving the European Union or the latest election just before Christmas you can see again that London has like a different outlook than the rest of the country from London there are so many assumptions made about why people vote in the way they do or assumptions about what they may or may not understand about the different consequences of that but actually I think it's just showing that there isn't representation of those regions within political power in Westminster if you see the prime minister's cabinet have all had very similar backgrounds very similar education from similar places how on earth are they supposed to represent the rest of the country in any way kind of just perpetuating the divide a lot yeah yeah it is and i think that the the way that they try and go about addressing this divide which is something that boris johnson promised to do and has completely not done um, is doing things like HS2, the train line. And that is just, for me, that's just stupid. Why are we spending that amount of money, especially now when people don't even need to commute into London anymore? It's just, I hate the way that the, that some governments like plow money into something. Have they even asked people whether they want to use it? It's not even making that much difference. It's like the difference of 20 minutes. It's just mm. stupid. Like put that into the environment, put that into cycle lanes, put that into, I don't know, like education. Tr- look at, Anything else would be better than that, in my opinion. Mm, totally. Um, and also with, I mean, this is now, I'm now jumping back like 500 years, but I thought this was interesting to think about, um, I kind of read about this sort of difference in religion and the religious aspects between the North and South. And when the kind of Reformation happened with Henry VIII and kind of getting, trying to like rid the country of Catholicism, um, that was, again, I guess because of just like distribution of power, the South became extremely anglicized. Um, like Church of England was very prominent, very strong. And in the North, Catholicism remained. And then obviously King of Scotland also was Catholic and remained Catholic. And there was this whole issue with power. And that's why it was so significant to have the King of Scotland and the King of England be the same, because it would unite the country in that in that regard. And so this whole issue does date back like thousands of years. And it is interesting seeing how the pandemic has really highlighted it. You know, there are far more deaths that occur. And that's because a lot of the jobs that, not everyone, but a lot of the jobs that are there, you can't work from home and be behind your laptop and be away from it all. How are we going to change that? How is the world going to change with with potentially dealing with the, the pandemic for many years, but also thinking of how, you know, different industries are going to become automated. There will be less need for people on the ground and how we actually take the whole country through that. I feel like this conversation is one, um, which is part of my favourite, that is just to be continued. It's going to be constantly 
coming up in different ways. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how you feel living in Nottingham, which is somewhere that you haven't been for very long, and how mm. like the differences that you notice of living in these different places. Have mm. you? Noticed- I know one of my yeah one of my mum's friends who's from Newcastle said so good that you're, you've lived in other parts of the UK like Grantham and Nottingham and I suppose Plymouth for a while. She's like because the rest of the country isn't London. No, and just one final thing on kind of again now with the pandemic. I think what was interesting is that the official lockdown for the whole country was very much led by the situation in London, as was the easing of lockdown. And I felt this in Scotland because when the measures started coming in of we're going to, you can start doing this, you can do that, you can do that. I felt like it was so early. I did not feel comfortable at all with these easing Mm -hmm. restrictions and I think a lot of that, again, and then we saw more cases and more deaths in the north of England, similar to Scotland, who were on the same sort of trajectory with it. Mm-hmm. And that didn't help because everything opened up a little bit too soon. So we needed to look at things holistically. And that's where I think even though it does create a divide between the four countries of the United Kingdom of having our own different restrictions, it does make sense because we're in geographically different places, but it can then be problematic, especially within England, when you start having this, well, you guys can't do anything, but in London, we can do all these things. Sad. It's sad. It's in, it's interest, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that continues. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Figure Podcast. Um, as always you can find us on Instagram please let us know if you have any comments or thoughts on anything that you have heard today always like to hear from everyone and please remember to give us five stars because that would really help other people find us thanks for listening Bye. bye